this is Rob Metris, and welcome to the second episode uh, in 2012 for the Two Big Telecom Guys podcast. Well, Jeff and I are going to resume our discussion of uh, changes in the uh, telecom industry and in computing in general. And so, without any further ado, let's get right into it. I think that there's, um, I think irrelevancy is a, is a good topic to carry on because I just think, you know, it's the same thing. Who's irrelevant now in the telecom industry? Great eight. Nortel. Yeah. Just like, who would have, who would have thought? Unix and boxes. Who's, who's becoming irrelevant in the wireless industry now? RIM. Yeah. RIM's, RIM's got the challenge now. Right, and it's you know Motorola became irrelevant. These are these are the leaders of, of technology like Motorola. And who, who who would have thought Google would acquire the Motorola Wireless division? Mm-hmm. Right. And Motorola, let's talk about communication. Yeah, well, it's, it's the so, whole it's the whole thing. It's like you know I start looking at this going, you know I talk to. Um, one of the core engineers who worked on the uh, the DMS switching system, they told me this whole they they saw the whole IP telephony as a joke because there was no way that, that that anybody could ever develop a switch that would be faster than what they could possibly do optically in their um, you know in their DMS switch. So it's that whole whole belief of being uh, the holy grail. And people who aren't afraid, as Seth Godin would say, to call, poke the box. Yeah. Try it. The successful uh, the successful businesses now are the ones that who was the, challenge the status quo. Who was the telecom? Harry Newman? Newton. Harry Newton, the uh, telecom consultant, and you know he ran a he ran a um, trade show called CT Expo, and he had Newton's telecom dictionary. So Harry Newton said, you know, computer telephony will take over the the world of telecom. And you know the big telecom execs were when pigs fly. And in 1998, the CT Expo was called Flying Pigs. <laughs> you know, and they, Motorola had made these big, had a a big pink flying elephant, a little elephant with wings on it, big pink elephant. And Motorola gave away these little squeezy stress bulbs there were pink elephants that said Motorola on it. Yeah. You know, so talk about irrelevancy. Of, you know, AT&T, irrelevant. Well, Nortel. I mean, AT&T's become irrelevant. It's no longer, you don't have an AT&T switch anymore. You've got a buyer or a Lucent. You've got these different names, but it's no longer, right? So, I mean, so, you know, it's just to talk about... Western Electric. There you go. A Bell company. Yep. And the ba- when the split took with the baby bells in the U.S., 
1991. And then the proliferation of competitive local exchange carriers. When did that happen in the U.S.? Just about, I would have said, 1988, 89. I, I think when Vonage first came on the scenes. And you know you'd have to you have to look at the that concept well, that would be, of IP. Well, Vonage came out in the late nineties. Yeah, IP telephony. But if you look at um, if you look at first, um, AT and T was actually um, when they broke up AT and T in the U.S. and started out with all the R box and stuff like that. That was in the early eighties. Mm -hmm. That's right? when Verizon came. That's when, which was the old New York Tel. Uh, that's when uh, Southern Bell, uh, Quest, yep. uh, and and the large companies. That's that's when we had the idiots like uh, Bernie Ebers, who were con men, selling MC, you know, with MCI, and other ventures that were, in a business sense, replacing existing technology, but they really weren't. They were just using the same. Uh, hardware and doing it. Sprint started that way. Well, they were spinning it. And and when you look at long distance costs, and I, I think this is the, if we looked at revenue over the years for the telcos, more of them made revenue, not on the last mile, which was their uh, their main prov provision of residential and business services. But they made money on their broadland, coast-to-coast uh, -coast networks, the, the uh, long distance, the toll, yeah. and, and others. Then you slowly see the proliferation of data. And in those days, data was, data was basically uh, special circuits. I mean, at that time, you, know, you would have had um, data pack. So that was your shared service. Your, right. your X25. X25, and then Datapack 2101 yeah. for the for business, the, the credit the card machines. 2101 was for the IBM. Yeah. Right. And then you, so you had that. And then you were getting into your your lease line. At that time, dial-up modems of 150 baud. Not bits per second, but baud. But. Right? And then 300 and then uh, 1,200, the Hayes, 1200, Hayes, Hayes compatible modems, they called yeah, them. So the Hayes, you know, they're... In Atlanta. Again, again, you know, here's... Talk about irrelevancy, right? Everybody knew what Hayes was. Hayes, Hayes dominated. Would, they were like Jell-O. Yeah. They were the... The Kleenex. De facto standard yeah. of... They were, of, they were the Kleenex of, of modems. And uh, then U.S. Robotics came along and were Hayes compatible, but they, they pushed the envelope from 1,200 to 2,400 to 4,800. And I remember um, sort of the last ditch with Hayes came out with their proprietary 90, v, uh, V32. It was a 9,600 bit per second proprietary modem. They didn't stay with the uh, open standard uh, protocol. And when the modems hit 14.4, um, that was it. It was never going to be faster. They had theor theoretically, they had pushed the envelope 
of analog communications. And every time that they, you know, they talked about the uh, mode of communications as they actually used a, a mathematical f formula for, you know, it was, you know, it was churchery, you know, so the third, the fourth, and, and it would go on to how many, how many phases could you actually stick into a time slot to get the number of uh, bit representations. You know, when it came out, then they came out with this uh, V34 modem that was 33.6. And it was mainly a fax modem. Yeah, and you know, so the whole thing, they came out, it's like fax, full color fax. Now there's, there's something that was a great idea that never caught on. No, no full one. Color, full color fax machines. In fact, you know, I can remember businesses in the early 90s being sold four and five thousand dollar fax machines because they were full color capable. They could transmit a full color document, but they couldn't print it. Yeah, and who could re and other other companies who received it couldn't do anything with it. Right. And so you had you had the technology way ahead of the adoption. You know, and nobody wanted to pay that money to print a bunch of documents. They were all, you know, facsimile, right? And so a photo being similar, right? Photo communication similarity, facsimile. It looks like the original. And, you know, trans the transmission of that, that's all people wanted. It's like it's black and white, I can read it, it's legible, that's all I need. And, you know, you look at today, today, here we are, we can tra we've been able to transmit electronic documents over the Internet for uh, publicly now people have been able to do this well over a decade, right? The early 90s, um, I would say just about every business by the late 90s was connected to the Internet with email and able to transmit documents. And yet the law still recognizes a facsimile as binding versus a scanned document. You know, the, the scanned documents, they still will, will not necessarily hold that up in a, in a court of law. It's, it's starting to change. But, you know, there's, there's the thing about technology, and uh, obviously because of our experience and our interest in this area, we would be in the class of what we call early adopter. Yeah. Um, We've gone through uh, the pain. Uh, we've got the gain, uh, only to see leapfrog, leapfrogging technology show up in the next version of what we've already bought. Yeah. And that is that mindset is so common in the technology industry. When you uh, now you're on, let's look at the iPhone. You're on the fourth iteration of the iPhone. And the prices come down, the the abilities have gone up, and uh, the adoption has absolutely surprised the world on a product that no one thought about six years ago, seven years ago. Now, when I say no, and I'm talking about the adoption, I, I read a historic te technology history. I, I go back, and we talk about Stanford. And why we're seeing San Jose 
as such a, and the Silicon Valley, as such a, uh, a haven of bright, bright, bright ideas because they had the foresight and they also had the academic excellence in the area. Yep. Now, the same is true for research in motion. Research in motion was built in the cradle of technology after the 90s. In Canada, the cradle of technology used to be Ottawa yeah. because of Nortel and digital equipment, etc. Northern Electric. Northern Electric. Bell Northern Research. Which, and uh, grossly funded by the Canadian government, yeah. and mainly for uh, other means. But here, here we have uh, adoption by uh, companies and governments of new technology that wasn't there five years ago because the public is demanding access. So we, when, we, when we talk about irrelevancy, uh, I could have asked somebody what an iPhone was five years ago and they would look at me like I was from Mars. Um, if I asked them what a cell phone was, they would know what that was. And irrelevancy and popularity come with different things. When I was a kid, I remember the policeman who had a mobile telephone in his car. And that was a huge thing. Motorola. Motorola, he could pick up and have a conversation duplex conversation yes. across to his dispatcher. Interesting, it was the, the transmitter was in the trunk and it took up almost the size of a suitcase. Yep. My first cell phone was a Rogers Cantel phone and it weighed about 15 pounds. It had a dialer. It had a cradle for the handset to with the cord to fit into. It had a almost a one foot aerial. Yep. And the brick, as I called it, underneath it, the Motorola phone, which was a new, really new technology, below it, probably that battery was 10, 15 times larger than the technology that was controlling the phone. Yep. So we've gone from that in 19... That would have been mid-1980s. And to another leap of technology where we had handheld devices like the BlackBerry, the original BlackBerry. And now we'll look look at the BlackBerry today because of innovation and leaps. BlackBerry is still, for some communities, a very popular device because of its security. But that company ventured into space that they don't know with the playbook, which has not been a stellar success for them. You know, I, I think, you take, let's talk a little bit about um, RIM, Research in Motion, that, you know, they had unprecedented success in their in, the, in their marketplace and you got to think about the device is really si- simple you know I can think that you know the first cell phone I had was in 
1991, 92, I, I had a Motorola bag phone. You know, the, the, I could have got a Motorola. I could have got one of those Motorola handheld. The, you know, the they were the big flip phone. Well, actually, before the flip phone, right? So it was that that beigey, sandy brown one that yeah. was kind of like a rectangle. You know, it was like holding a like a square princess like, phone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, I had this this bag phone, and it, it was cool because I had a had a twelve volt had a twelve volt battery that was you know about eight times to ten times the size of your exist. The battery itself was eight times to ten times the size of most cell phones today. Right, but that phone had a three watt transmitter on it. So it meant I could be 20 miles back in the bush in the middle of nowhere, and I could still get cell phone. You know, I go up to a friend's cottage north of, uh, of Kingston, about 30 miles, and we're out in the wilderness, and I still have cell phone. So New Year's Day, I have cell coverage in the wilderness, and there's no telephones out there. And, you know, then spring forward in, into the late 90s when a company comes to Canada called uh, Microcell, and introduces this new technology um, called GSM, and was the first digital cell phones that introduced text messaging. And nobody used text messages back then. And the cool thing was, I could be in—I was in California. It was in the back of my friend's car. They were taking me. They went from—we went from Sausalito. We went along Highway One along the coast, and that. I'm sitting in the back of this car, and I'm text messaging. Now, mind you, the text message on the phones back then, you had to press the A key three times to get a C. <laughs> you know, the, to get an E, you press three times on the, on the three. And you would text message like this, and you could text message in, in real time. You know, and I thought this was the coolest thing. Text messaging was free for me, and a phone call was 80 cents. Right. So then we, we spring forward, and, and, and here's, along comes, you know, and we had two, the, the next text messaging was like, Right after the alphanumeric two-way pagers, right? You remember yeah. those? Yeah. Remember the one-way pager? You, you, you'd have you just that got a pager beep. on your belt and the beep, and you would look at it, and there would be a phone number. Well, you know, people who were, you know, we would we we developed a coding system, so there'd be phone number along with three or four digits, so they would let you know what you need to do. So, you know, so as long as you had the decoder ring, you could tell what what you were what you were talking about. Get milk. You know, bring home eggs, whatever it was, you know. And we look at now, along comes the BlackBerry, right? The BlackBerry really, it's just instant messaging. And it's transmitting instant messages that are that have gone beyond the, um, how many characters in an instant message? Is it 120? 120 characters, right? Yeah. And so you take this and you're, all they're doing is concatenating multiple 120 Character messages, and they transmit this up to their their server, and then they transmit it to the to the phone, right? And BlackBerry introduced that, and that you know gave them that put them in the position of okay, we've got something here, right? So we can bring email. And along the same time, you know, you look at someone else who introduced a, a phone uh, trio, the Palm, Palm. Trio. And the Palm Trio allowed you to connect your phone to a SMTP server and pop three and pull your messages. And it was it really it looked just like the BlackBerry, but it wasn't. There was reasons it wasn't successful because most organizations 
would not, not have internet mail servers. They didn't have SMTP <laughs> servers. And not only that, they didn't have people that understood how to interconnect these things to the internet. Right? So now here we are, you, you, you have research in motion. And, and you know, what I see with research in motion is you got a tremendous uh, mind group, mind power there, mind share in the, the triangle of Canada, the you know, Waterloo. Community tech, the technology right? so triangle. The technology triangle there. And they've developed some really cool devices. But what's happened is that every generation of the BlackBerry is a completely different device. It's a new animal. So there's, there's, a, there's very little compatibility between handsets. If there's five devices out there, there's really five different versions of OS. And applications are not universally compatible between these. Yeah, and I think... I know I'm, like, right now I'm grossly simplifying this and, and you know... Well, so we're, talking, we're talking as geeks here, but from yeah. the consumer's point of view and the consumer behind the scenes, yeah. the growth of the BlackBerry meant, and, and let's not just look at North America and Europe, around the world. Globally. Globally. And today, I mean, there are riots in Indonesia when a new, uh, a new BlackBerry comes out. Wonderful. China. BlackBerry. Uh, it's, it's a mindset of technology. But if you think about the BlackBerry, it's really just a text screen. And they've added some applications in, the, in their new operating systems. They've got applications that uh, give you TV, give you radio, give you all sorts of other things. But they're really not what the basic device was for. Then along comes Nokia uh, and a few of the others. Now, we talk about technology firms becoming irrelevant. Yeah. Well, Motorola is the founder of motorized radio, yeah. almost globally. Yeah. Uh, Motorola devices have been uh, police departments, uh, armed taxis. forces, taxis, whatever, had a Motorola device. Type of yeah, and now, and Motorola is, is no more. To, per, it's been gobbled up by Google for not the technology but for the minds of the people that worked for Motorola uh, into the Google mind. And, yep. and, you know, you're not buying technology now. You're buying pools of labor that are highly, highly specialized. You get Nokia, which is struggling now to keep the lead that they had in the marketplace on small phone sets. Cheap, cheap phone sets, probably Nokia is, is still a global leader. The other phone companies, Samsung, the Koreans, the, the Japanese, Japanese really were never a huge player in, in cell phones, but the, the Koreans... Uh, well, you know, where's, where's Ericsson today? Yeah. Sony Ericsson. Sony they, Ericsson. They were a big player in the headset game. You don't hear much from them. And, and some of their product has not, uh, they, they just don't have it in, in, in terms of where it comes out. So when, when I think about irrelevancy, I'll go back to looking at where Nortel was. Back in, we called it the regular telephone days. Oh, they were the dominant. 
they were the Nortel. Nortel was a blue chip name. It was synonymous with telephone systems. And it was as synonymous with a telephone as IBM would have been with the computer. computers. Absolutely. And even IBM by that time had really got out of computing yeah. uh, and moved more towards services than they than they ever did before. I mean, they still had hardware, but they were mainly doing other people's work for them as a service provider. You know, if you looked worldwide uh, 25 years ago, every mainframe switch out there, I would say one in probably four out of five were Nortel. And the others and were the main, Siemens? And the other were Siemens, and, you know, maybe, in, you know, and then there's our local favorite from Ottawa there, uh, Mitel, who seemed to have a really big popularity with British Telecom. And Gandalf. Right? And so they, yeah, Gandalf, right? There, there's another name that's, you know, Gandalf is, is, is survived by uh, Lord of the Rings now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you think about that these, these, these names and that Nortel was literally a household name globally because probably the majority of the handsets that hung on people's walls in their homes and their businesses were Nortel handsets. The original Northern Electric. Yeah. You know, and that that whole building and, and implosion of an empire. And, and, you know, to think about what, what caused, you know, what caused the shift of, of a global name to, to irrelevancy, right? And it's that, I, I think there's, you know, you get there's a disbelief that anything could possibly be better and that change is possible. And the, the ideas of people that challenge today, disruption is, disruption in markets is so much more prevalent, prevalent than evolution in markets yeah. and revolution. Disruption I think is going to be the watchword for the next two or three years, uh, where we where we look out and we see established players uh, jostling, and maybe we uh, maybe as we close out this episode, we can we can talk about established players jostling and looking at the thing that most people do at home at night is watch TV. So what you're dealing with today is almost the disintermediation of TV networks by computer-based digital, digital lookalikes. Oh, absolutely. A example, you know, you have PVRs that can record the TV show and <laughs> exclude the advertising. You have uh, YouTube uh, and eight or nine other similar things to YouTube. When CNN <laughs> is reporting a news story and their sources are Twitter and YouTube and they got a YouTube video, you know, you think about the cost reductions for some of those major news companies by the virtue of they've got millions and millions of reporters out there with Twitter and Arab Spring comes to mind, other issues, where we heard about it through a social network. We heard about it on YouTube because somebody posted 
a video of it. And, and now people may not be watching their TV as much as getting their news. And in, in, in the US, CBS now has a digital division. NBC Universal is slow to it. CNN is slow to it, but it's there. In Canada, where we've always had our wonderful duopoly between Rogers and Bell, Bell has bought the TV network, CTV, and they deliver television on people's devices that are their customers, yep. not on other people's devices that aren't their customer. So a Rogers cell phone wouldn't get a CTV show delivered on that Rogers phone. So Rogers has to generate their own content. You know, what's interesting is you talk about that is how Bell and Rogers have purchased the sports teams in Toronto. Together. The Raptors, the Maple Leafs, the um, Argonauts. Like the, all of the sports teams are now own that whole franchise, the Maple Leafs. It's all owned by, these, by Bell and Rogers. And you have to ask yourself, why did they do that? They hear a two competitors in the space and that you know really comes to show us that they're controlling the media and they're controlling the advertising space you know we go back to last year when we talked about usage-based billing usage-based billing had nothing to do with the kids who who, who download uh, their video games or share uh, movie files across the internet usage-based billing was how do we how do we put a lockdown on what content people can stream to their to their home on our network free as an open internet and then once it goes beyond what we deem as a reasonable amount of of transfer you know and as we prove that every every three to five years technology changes the amount of bandwidth changes and the cost of delivering uh, like transferring information actually goes down and not up and yet Here's, here's an organization that's twisting our, our local legislative around their fingers. And why were they doing that? They weren't doing that because they're of congestion. They were doing it because the reality is if someone from Beijing moves to Toronto and decides to watch a Beijing TV show, that now there's no longer any advertising revenue coming from the person watching that television and streaming the news internationally or someone from... Um, whether they're coming in from New Delhi or they're coming from London or they're coming in from South America, South America from Peru, they, they can choose to watch whatever they want and they can go, today our media sources are wherever we want them to be. And right? the, the tremendous disruption that would cause to their revenue streams, I think will be one of the things that we'll see massive change in the next two or three years. Not only... Uh, not only uh, the thought of my monopoly controlling that, but also of making the whole spectrum become much more open and competition becoming more open. Because as we've seen in teleco, telecom, when there's vigorous competition, there is benefits to the consumer and, and price. And it, I think it follows that as companies become irrelevant, 
we'll have new companies that will become extremely relevant. And while we're looking at Apple today as the market leader, who knows what is out there coming in the next year or so. So, for this episode, this is Rob. And I'm Jeff. And this is the two big telecom guys talking about irrelevancy. We look forward to uh, hearing or seeing from you or listening, having you listen in to us on our next episode. You can get uh, the Two Big Telecom Guys podcast on iTunes and many other fine streaming solutions.